Okay. It's been a long time, so any questions you might have over this morning, and uh, we haven't really had an ABF discussion for a while, so if there's no questions from this morning, we can go back to the John prologue. We could even go back to earlier in Luke, but um, questions from this morning. Microphone. So this morning in the notes I took, you mentioned a promise on um, the glory or uh, on, let's see, you mentioned a promise and I probably missed it in my notes. Hmm. You remember one God, of your points. Well, the, that the, blank, the promise right there on the blanks is 3A. Promise God will vindicate his elect. He will ultimately give justice to us. We may not get justice guaranteed in the here and now, but we can all rest confident if you've been mistreated, if you have been wronged, if you are um, taken advantage of, if you are in any way like this widow, you've been crying out to God, you will get justice without delay. So whatever time it takes, whatever that is, it's not a delay. That's the promise. You can bank on that. It's coming. You will receive justice. You will be vindicated. Um, the scales will be balanced. The recompense will be given out. The, the judgment will be given upon the wrongdoer. The righteous will be exalted. That will happen. You have God's word on it. That's the promise. And in the text, it's um, verse 7. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay along over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. There's the promise. There's the emphatic word of, of, of Christ. And that's, that's what we have to bank on. While we remember, and the, the thing I always, I mean, I, was, uh, I went to lunch at a professor's house. No, it wasn't a professor's house. I went to lunch with a seminary professor at another church member's house in California, Professor Cragen, and um, he, he, uh, he had some disease or condition that gave him a really hoarse voice. So he had, always had to listen and sort of talk like this. And, and so we're at lunch, and he knew something about this family that we were at their house that I didn't know, and he asked the wife to tell her story, and apparently she had been married to a man um, who either she got saved when she was married or he professed Christ, but eventually she was in an unequally yoked marriage, where she's a believer and her husband's not. And the husband was unfaithful, the husband divorced her, and then made her out to be like a religious kook and managed to get full custody of the kids. So all three of her kids, he got full custody. And she chose not to fight back, and he was pulling up dirty stuff, just making her look like some fundamentalist nutcase. And, um, and in time, every one of those kids, when they turned 18, moved back in with her in time. But God's vindication for her took a decade or more. And Cragen was asking how on earth she put up with that. I mean, not only are your kids taken from you, but they're taken from you because everyone's saying you're an unfit mother. I mean, that's just got to be brutal. You know, the, and how, how did she resist the temptation to hire an attorney to throw mud back? Oh, yeah, well, you. And her, uh, her remark was so profound. It, it's one of those things, it's kind of like my... Okay, I won't go off on that tangent. Um, it was profound because she didn't realize it was profound. If she, if she said it knowing it was pithy or profound, it would seem kind of trite. But she just said, um, Jesus even now is awaiting vindication. 
Jesus, even now, his name is blasphemed. People raise their fists at him. People insult him. People defy him. And yet he is waiting on his father's timetable. You know, Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So Jesus is enduring abuse and mistreatment. Jesus is waiting. She said, I just remembered that and I thought, well, then if he can wait God's timetable for justice, so can I. I just, wow, you know, you know. So God won't delay, meaning there will be no unnecessary delay. Clearly, Jesus is envisioning the very fact that we need to not lose heart means Jesus is not promising it'll be like that. But there will be no, God is not taking his time. He's not, well, I'll do this. Whatever delay is there is, is purposeful, intentional, and we can trust that his motives are good. That's, that's what I'm getting at. Yep. Wonderful. So any other promises come to mind? I've still been thinking about your sermon on the glory of God in Romans 8.18. Mm. Romans 8.18, which says, remind me, or I'll turn there. I need, see, someone's put For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's 2 Corinthians, Oops. I believe, 4, right? Sorry, I was in, well, was I was in Romans 8. Oh, wow, okay. It's so, just, the, uh, just thinking about the promises, if my, if, if my faith, my prayer life kind of shows my faith, then the more promises that I can think on to help me with my faith. Absolutely. So I was just wondering if you had other thoughts on promises related to, to the suffering to go through it. Romans 8, no, you're quite right. And by the way, that's awesome that you guys got your Bibles out there. You're like, hey, call them on. No, Romans 8, 18, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that's revealed in us. 2 Corinthians 4, which was just on my mind because we read it earlier. See, I'm backpedaling. Um, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us a weight of eternal glory beyond all comparison. Um, but, no, you're right. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's been revealed to us. The creation awaits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was not subjected to futility, not willingly because of him. This actually is tying in with my pastor's pen from this month about suffering. Um, so th this whole world's groaning. If you look in this passage, groaning shows up three times. First, um, verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And that's under the curse. So, I mean, you watch the, the nature channel and you see animals devouring animals. Creation's groaning. Uh, when Christ comes back and sets up his kingdom, the, the lion will, will lay down with the lamb and eat straw. You know, like, so this is unnatural. This is part of the fall. Then we ourselves, 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly, as we await eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So that's just a groaning that takes place right there through physical pains. That's sort of why I lumped that in as well. I mean, Lois is groaning. As much as God's being gracious, any one of us with any health issue is groaning, and we're awaiting you know, the resurrection. I talked to Phil Hopper, and you know, how you doing, Phil? Nothing a good resurrection can't take care of. You know? um, <laughs> And uh, amen and amen. But then God joins, echoes with us. So the groaning isn't just the world and isn't just us, but God himself in us is groaning. That's the amazing thing, God sympathizing with us. I mean, here's another promise, that our experience of suffering and our experience of, of groaning and needing to endure, God shares with us in that. 
um, verse 26, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what we ought to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings. And we're told in Hebrews that our Savior is able to sympathize with us due to the incarnation because he himself has suffered like we have suffered so he can give us help when we're tempted. So you remember, I have a God who suffered. I have a God who understands. I don't have this austere God who says, why are you waking me up in the middle of the night for bread? Go away, leave me alone. We have a God who says, call me Father and come, draw near. We have a God who is not ashamed to have the sinful woman fall at his feet and wipe her, his feet with her hair. And so all these things, I mean, whether they're promises or not, they're truth that we need to remind ourselves with. And there's probably even a more significant and fundamental point. What did Jesus, let me ask this, what did Jesus do in order to teach and enable the disciples to pray without ceasing and not lose hope? What did he do? He spoke. I need God's word if I'm going to persevere in prayer and persevere in steadfastness. So Jesus, knowing that his disciples needed that, spoke things to them. And so, again, you and I need to be in the Word. And there's a connection between the Word and our prayer life and perseverance, right? Um, because when we're going and we're reading God's Word, one of the things we're looking for is promises, things that are true, things of God's character that we can hold on to so that when we're discouraged and when we're tempted to think God doesn't care, we can fight back with faith. Um, okay, this is a good tangent. Let's, I'm going to sit. I could just sit on the stairs. Psalm 77. You got me off on a tangent, but it's good. Um, well, it's not a tangent. It's, well, it's a tangent, let's be honest. Um, but Psalm 77. One of the things I love about the Psalms is just how real they are. Um, the, the Psalm, sometimes you get this impression in Christianity that Christianity needs to be neat and tidy and color on the lines, and you sort of get this, like, Michael Kincaid posters and... And there's some truth to that. There, there are seasons of mountaintop seasons where everything's sunshine and beautiful. But most of the Christian life is somewhere in between where outwardly we're perishing and inwardly we're being renewed. And the Psalms, these are songs God gave his people to sing, in, involve some pretty heavy and serious things. And in Psalm 77, we see somebody struggling, and God is therefore assuming his people will struggle with some pretty heavy questions. Um, and I love the fact that the Bible doesn't shy away from this, that you can, you can ask these questions, struggle with these questions, and, and not you know, be outside of God's will. Or, like, a spirit-inspired author wrote Psalm 77. Just let's read it. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out with wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remembered God, I moan. And I meditate, my spirit faints, Salah. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart when my spirit made a diligent search. Then the, the psalmist is going to ask five questions. And I just want you to imagine wrestling with these five questions, for real. Get them out of their pretty little, you know, written, no, well, no one has these verses written on their wall in, in quilting. But take a moment for each one of these. Let these sink in. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Is God just going to stretch out his hand against me? And that's it. He's never again going to be gentle and kind. Because God does stretch out his hand. God disciplines his sons and daughters. God does bring in hardship. But the question is, is that all he's going to do now? 
Is that all he's going to do? Spurn, cast off, never again be favorable? God anticipates that at times his children may wrestle with those questions. Because here it is in the psalm. Second question. Has his steadfast love forever ceased? And that's, that's a bigger statement than you probably get because steadfast love is God's gospel covenant love. It's his chesed. It's only ever used of covenant loyal love. This, have, have God's love that comes through the gospel, is that broken? Imagine wrestling with that one. We're talking to someone wrestling with that one. Has, I know God in the past was loving, but has he stopped? Because it sure seems like he stopped. I certainly haven't experienced any lately, is what this person's saying. Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Graver still, are his promises at an end for all time? Can he be trusted? Or has God begun to break his word? You're in this psalm, this person is wrestling with all these questions. You can wrestle with all these questions and not be like far from God. How you wrestle with them as we'll see in the rest of the psalm, makes all the difference. But you can be struggling with these questions. Here, God expects his people to sing this to him. Verse 9, question number 4. Has God forgotten to be gracious? Where is his grace? Number 5. Has he in anger shut up his compassion? So that's what this guy is wrestling with. This, the author is wrestling with these questions, questioning the very faithfulness of God, his fidelity, his character, his love, his truthfulness, his dependability. These are all things that, I, linking into our text today, would cause someone to lose heart. If you concluded, yes, God can no longer be trusted, yes, God's no longer loving, you would lose heart. But how does the psalmist fight back? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the ears of the right hand of the Most High. And what he does is he remembers what God has done. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. So the way the psalmist fights back against this discouragement is he goes back to God's word and remembers what God has done. And we'll see in a minute, it's the exodus that he goes back to. He remembers God's salvation at the exodus, and it gives him hope. But notice how from questioning God's faithfulness and fidelity, he goes to praising God. I mean, it's amazing. And the hinge is verse 11 and 12. Remember, remember, ponder, meditate. God's deeds, God's wonders, God's works, God's mighty deeds. Because verse 13 is very different from verses 7 through 9. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You've made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. So I, I, what I picture is this person is in this funk. They are beset with doubts and uncertainty and fear. I, and they go and they read the Exodus account. They just crack open Exodus. And they see a God who's a savior, who loves his people. They, they remember Exodus, the end of Exodus 2. The Lord heard and he saw and he knew and he cared. And, and, and God heard their cry that went up to him and he delivered them and he raised up Moses and he defeated their enemies. And as he's remembering, oh yeah, that's who God's like. He's got a very different perspective on things. He's praising God. And then he goes through in 16 through 20, recounting it even further. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. You often wouldn't think that 
going and reading the Exodus accounts could help someone dealing with questions of, is there a God and can he be trusted? But for, at least for this psalmist, that's exactly what he did. And, and so remembering and going back, not just to God's promises, but to his deeds and his character. What has God done? I mean, this is one of the reasons I like reading Christian biographies. You, know, you read about God's faithfulness in George Mueller's life. Like, oh yeah, that's what he's like. Or you can read the biblical accounts of what God's done. That, that, that's better yet. But we constantly need to be reminded of who our God is because our hearts are deceptive and we drift away and we start to give God a, a makeup job. But he, the image gets distorted and we need to constantly be reminded again and again and again and again, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. You know, and, and so another piece is going back and meditating on what God's done so that we'll persevere in hope and faith. But I mean, a lot, Jim, microphone. You got it. And uh, I think uh, false gospels, for instance, the prosperity light mm. gospel, how oh, it yeah. feeds into that. Oh, yeah. Uh, it would minimize or eliminate the truth of God's compassion and love towards his elect. Yeah. That is, when someone who clings to that false gospel goes through a trial, tribulation, yeah. oppression, which they will, yeah. then they have nothing to fall back on. They would believe that God has somehow failed as opposed to it being his timetable and he will vindicate the injustice. Amen. Yeah, what Jim's referring to uh, is, I've coined, I don't, maybe someone else says, the prosperity light gospel or gospel light. The full-on prosperity gospel says uh, amongst his teachers that if you become a Christian, you'll be rich, you'll drive a Rolls Royce, you'll have everything you need, you'll never be sick again. Well, I, I don't think our, our church and others like us are in danger of, of falling into that error, but I think a much more subtle version is something like the, the prosperity gospel light or like the, the American Christian dream. If you're a Christian and you're faithful, things will be pretty smooth and you'll get by and you'll be okay and you'll have a house with a white picket fence and you'll dodge the cancer and you'll dodge the major disease and you'll dodge the, um, the stillbirth and, you know, life will generally be smooth, generally speaking, you know, and you'll be respected in your community and, you know, and, and that's, that's sort of the prosperity gospel light. And we can buy into, we, we can recognize we've bought into it when the, the, the calamity does come and we respond saying, hey, God, what gives? In fact, if you look to the very next parable, I mean, like I said, these are linked, the prayer parables, right? Isn't the whole point of the next one, who do you think you are? Which, which one of these two people when you pray to God do you identify with? He told some, verse 9, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So one person thinks he's righteous in and of himself, and treats others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, a Pharisee and a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, or prayed to himself, as a footnote in the SV. Um, I was just actually translating this yesterday. He like stood to himself. It's like he struck a pose. Like, what would be a good prayer pose? Hold on. We'll get to break. There we go. Yeah. Um, he wants to be seen. And these are the guys who sound gongs when they give to the poor, right? Um, Two men went up to the temple to pray. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other... Now, notice he's thanking God. I mean, C.S. Lewis has this, this phrase, um, the proud person will pay God a tuppence 
in, in humility to cash in pounds in pride. You know, the point is, well, it's not all me. I can't take all the credit for how wonderful I am. Surely, thank you, God, that I'm as good as I am, right? Um, you'll, you'll pay a little tax because you don't want to seem too ridiculous. Uh, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. These are good things. It's a good thing this guy's not an adulterer, right? I mean, that's good. It's good that he tithes. It's good that he's not unjust. It's good that he's not an extortioner. Those are all good things. And then you get the tax collector, who I just don't think we get how despised these guys were. I mean, imagine... Okay. Imagine our country was under foreign rule, how much we'd resent that. And some among us co-opted out and were working for the foreign oppressor to extort money from us. I just imagine how much those people would be despised. That's what this guy's doing. He's working for Rome to, to tax his brethren and take their money for Rome against the people of God. This tax collector um, says... Um, Verse 13, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. So here are two archetypes of ways to approach God in prayer. One person approaches God in his own standing. I'm thankful, God, that you let me be this good, but he's coming in his own standing. The other recognizes his unworthiness. One comes, and even though he's thanking God, is basically talking to himself. The other, despite how despicable he is, is crying out, confessing his sin. I'm the sinner. Be merciful. I need mercy. Okay, so, so here's the second lesson on prayer. Which of these two people is going to feel like God's done them something wrong when the calamity comes? Not the tax collector. He gets his unworthiness. And so if God thinks this is the trial that I need, but I think the Pharisee is going to be kind of upset. If the crops don't come in, if the child gets lost, the sickness comes. So I, I think the second point in this as well to help is remembering who we are. Because if we're really getting our sinfulness and our need of mercy and grace, then what wrong has God done us? None. It gets back to what, who you think. I mean, there's another, um, who was it, Oz Guinness. No, no, it was C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis again. He describes um, a, a hotel room that's kind of dingy, and the bed, there's just a mattress on the floor in the corner, and the, the lamp barely works, and it smells, and there's stains on the wall. And he says, imagine two different groups of people spend a night in this room. One thought they were going to a prestigious four-star hotel. The other got smuggled out of a prison camp. And both of them are told they got to spend a couple days here waiting. One is going to be upset, and I can't process this. And the other is going to think this is the best thing ever. A lot of it, your understanding, your interpretation, my interpretation of what happens in our circumstances is directly tied to who we think we are and what we think we deserve. Um, and if we understand that, that the person smuggled out of the prison camp, you're on your way to a paradise, but for a time being, you've got to hang out here for a bit while everything gets set up and put in order. You're going to spend your time in that hotel room very differently than the person who, I thought I was going to stay at the Carlton or the Ritz. What is this? And we're told there's a kingdom coming and there's, our Lord has gone away to prepare a mansion for us and that we're being inherited into God's kingdom and that we're his sons and daughters and we're heirs of creation and we're going to rule alongside of Christ but, but abide here for a bit. That's going to change the way you look at your surroundings and the way you interpret your suffering and your trials. Um, 
is, is absolutely going to do that. So I think, I mean, I'm stealing some of them from next week, but it's, it's put right after this is, which one of these archetypes are you coming to God in your prayers? Which one of these two do you more identify with? Which one better describes you or me? Because if you're this tax collector, you're not saying, God, you owe me. His whole thing is, I need grace. Be merciful to me. I need mercy. I need grace. Not, I got rights. You better meet my expectations. So, anyway, that was, yeah. More thoughts I want to run with that, or have I beat it to death? <laughs> Linda. So how do we reconcile the widow's persistence then with Luke 6.30? About not asking for... Luke 6.30? Yes. Let me go So it's basically if something's been taken from you, don't ask for it back. But yet... Mm. To them... I think the whole point in Luke 6 is your interaction with them. They strike you, you turn to them the other cheek. They ask for your cloak, you give it to them. They ask for something, you don't ask for it back from them. So as I relates to horizontally to people, I don't avenge myself. I turn the other cheek. As it relates horizontally to other people, I'm encouraged to, to allow myself to be taken advantage of. I'm to allow myself to be mistreated. As it gets to God in my prayers, God, do what is just and right. That's, that's exactly the, the axis. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. So one is, so go to, go to Second Peter. Go to First Peter. Jesus did this, right? So Jesus ultimately gives us the model of suffering and putting up with mistreatment. He has every right imaginable, and yet he is slandered, spat upon, flogged, whipped, crucified. Yet while he was doing that, Peter tells us that Jesus himself is longing for justice and judgment. It's not as though Jesus is like, oh, these people flogging him. Well, it's okay. He, he wants them to be punished in one sense. Absolutely he does. Look at, look at James. Let me get to Peter. First Peter, two. Um, and getting back to the prosperity gospel like Jim, people don't often understand Christianity as it relates to First Peter 2.21, for to this you have been called, Christian, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. And then we're going to get the argument from the greater to the lesser. We, today, the text was the lesser to the greater. If the, if, the, if the corrupt judge, how much more the righteous judge? Now it's the other way around. He committed no sin. Neither of us, none of us can make that claim. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But what did he do? continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus wants judgment. He just didn't take it himself. Jesus is saying, God, I'll wait on your time. You will judge justly, and that's good enough for me. So Tim Keller talks about a, a friend of his who came out of Cambodia and saw the killing fields in Cambodia and made a pretty remarkable statement. It was his confidence in the doctrine of hell that enabled him to turn the cheek and love his enemy. Because he'd seen such horrible things that it was only, I am confident God will make things right. I am confident there will be justice and judgment. And so because of hell, I can now go love my enemy. Not the way we usually think of those things. But it's supreme confidence that judgment will come, that righteousness will come, that the scales will be balanced, that not one iota 
of, of mistreatment gets slips by that won't be accounted for, that won't be reckoned. Okay, now that I know that, I can go pour out my life for other people. Now that I know that, I can go turn the other cheek. Because I don't, because what am I, I want to make sure I don't get mistreated. I, I need to look out for myself, right? No, I can trust that God's going to do that. So now I can go more and more be the type of person Christ is calling me doing the sermon. On the, does, that, does that distinction make sense? No? <laughs> yeah, I get what you're saying, but okay. I guess I'm thinking more along the lines of the stuff that I've been dealing with. And so where do I, you know, draw the line between going for justice versus mm. saying, okay, never mind, I'll just, you know, let I'll it be. I'll give you a short answer now, and we can chat more about this tonight at Small Group, just because your specifics. Um, the short answer is, this doesn't mean a complete and total abandonment of any pursuit of justice and righteousness in this world. It doesn't mean that at all. Paul appeals to Caesar when he's, who wants his trial in Rome. Um, and so it, it doesn't mean that. And I encourage people, you know, God's put the, the state to restrain wickedness and sin. And, and, you know, if somebody mugs me, I'm going to call the police. <laughs> you know, absolutely. What I'm prohibited from is personal vengeance. And in other words, God has apportioned people in offices to, to do that. And the state is one of those. He's an avenger, according to Romans 13. I'm not to avenge. Brothers, never avenge yourselves. Now, if I see someone getting attacked and I go help them, I'm not avenging anything, right? So I, I, would, I would act to stop someone you know, attacking, mugging someone. But vengeance doesn't enter into it. Um, so I think in the context here, Jesus is assuming mistreatment. Jesus is assuming things are tough, persecution, and they're crying out for God. They're not taking it to their own hands. Because in Luke's, he's told them, hey, when people mistreat, you turn the other cheek. But they're crying out still, rightly, for, this, for things to be balanced. In other words, the Christian ethic is not, it doesn't matter. The Christian ethic is not, you deserve it. The Christian ethic is not um, even considering what's coming. What does it matter that you're mistreated now? The Christian ethic says, there's a righteous judge, and in his time, he'll deal with it. Is that good enough for you? Or, I, I, I love this picture, how did um, David's son Absalom turn the hearts of the people of Israel against his father? He set up his little kangaroo court. You can, go, you can go read about it in 2 Samuel. He set up his little kangaroo court on the path to the, to, to the uh, castle, and he basically would render out his own little judgments. And he, people had complaints, come, come to me. And that's how he won, and won over the hearts of the people of Israel. And I think that so often my anger, my wrath is doing the same thing. There's a holy judge and a holy righteous judge, and I'm indicting his justice because I don't trust he's going to get it done. Because that was Solomon's whole argument. You can't, David doesn't deal with things. If only there were a king in Israel who would render out justice, well, I'll do the best I can. I'll stand in the gap. And so my anger and my attempts at vengeance and to make my will be done on earth as I'd have it be in heaven, is all my, in a sense, saying, I can't trust or wait on God's justice. So I guess I'll have to take care of things myself. There's a sense in which all of my attempts at doing that is exactly what I'm doing. Um, God's justice isn't good enough or it's too slow. Either way, I'll stand in the gap. I guess I'll have to take care of things myself. If you want something done right, you gotta do it yourself. You know? And so that's, that's, the, that's where I'm seeing them intersect one day. I don't know if that, that helped at all. So by all means, in your situation, to the degree that God's put an avenger of wrath to, to uphold righteousness and, and justice, appeal to Caesar and ask for justice. Paul did. You know what I mean? Um, 
absolutely. I mean, we've talked. So, is that the same way you would reconcile a military versus military sure. situation? Sure. Yeah. I mean, but I hope a soldier isn't. I mean, I, and this is part of the problem. Is like you actually see movies. I'm thinking of, you know, I'm God's holy vengeance or something. You know, I, I yeah, I wouldn't want. I, I would hope. And, I, and not having been a soldier, I, I'm just hoping. I would hope there's a sort of fearful, what I'm doing is an awesome and terrible responsibility. God has given the state the right to bear the sword. I'm the agent of the state. I'm hoping and trusting that what I'm doing is in the cause of righteousness. And it's a fearful thing to take human life. But the people telling me to take human life have the authority to do that. You know, and so that's what John the Baptist told the Roman centurions. Don't falsely accuse. Don't be content with your wages. I mean, if, if this was a straight call to pacifism, he'd just say, okay, quit your jobs, go home. Right. But should I go into, should a person go into battle hating their enemy, despising them? I can't wait to make them pay. They're going to bathe in their blood. They're, yeah, that, that doesn't sound right to me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, that, I don't know. But I've never been there. But that, yes, yes. It doesn't, the two don't have to exclude each other. You, you could, I think, be in war and not be consumed with wrath and vengeance. I'd hope you could, at least. But I've never had to try to do that, so I'll speak carefully. Anybody? Oh, all the way back. The doctor. Steve. Steve. Two-part question, so I'll try and be direct. Yes, sir. Um, so I have felt this groaning, feel like I have been wronged, uh, thought I should knock on her door and give her my coat. And in a sense, I still seek vengeance to the point of waking up at night with a dream that I am burning their house down. <laughs> I appreciate your candor. <laughs> Is that sinful? Okay. Go to James 1. Is that part one? Is there the other parts coming? Okay. I'm at, this is going to be a doozy. If that's part one. Okay. You have to um, wait for part two. Okay. Okay. Um, what if I've already done it? Then what? Um, James 1. James, <laughs> okay, um, verse 14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. When desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it brings forth to death. So I would say that the desire to take vengeance upon your neighbor and burn their house down is an unrighteous desire. You've not sinned necessarily just because that desire pops up, you have a dream, because Temptation isn't sin. Temptation, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. So you can be tempted and not sin. This desire can come up. Now, the question is, do you spend an hour and a half daydreaming about how the flames would rise to heaven? <laughs> well, well, yeah, yes. In that sense, it's no different than if you spent the hour fantasizing about, about your neighbor's wife, right? Like, yes, sinful desire when it's entertained, when our will embraces it, when we say yes and... Yeah, yeah, that's wrong. But simply having the idea, no. But no, we're not to take vengeance into our own hands. Go, go, to, go to Romans 12. And the reason why, this is, this is what's fascinating, getting back to, there's still something right in wanting justice. Because Paul's reason for why you shouldn't take vengeance for yourself is because God's vengeance is so much better. 
Um, God's vengeance is so much more effective. It's kind of, I mean, Paul literally is saying, you don't want to mess around puny, toddly, teeny-weeny vengeance, do you? Get out of the way. God's got a howitzer cannon of vengeance. Romans 12, um, verse 17. Well, starting verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it or make room for the wrath of God. Now, I'll tell people this frequently. You can fight for you or God can fight for you, but you're not going to get both. The picture here is get out of the way. I, mean, I like to picture in my head. I've got this little slingshot and I've got some marbles, and I'm standing right in front of this massive like cannon on an aircraft. You know, those ones that you could like walk into, they're so big and tall. And I'm blocking it. It's not gonna fire while I'm standing in front of it. I got my little slingshot and I'm pew, pew, pew. Yeah. Because literally it's make room for God's wrath. So the irony here is I'm not to avenge myself because then I'm only going to get this teeny-weeny vengeance, right? Make room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord God. So that's what I'm getting at when we try to take vengeance. We're usurping God's authority. We're playing God. It's not that vengeance is wrong in an ultimate sense. It's that it's God's, and we're not God. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For so by doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. So that's, it's a really interesting motivation. So no, because here's ultimately the deal. When someone's evil to me and I overcome evil with good, one of two things is going to happen. Either God is going to use my kindness, overcoming evil for good, to win them to Christ. Yay. Or, as they continue to mistreat me and I'm trying to overcome evil with good, it's making hell hotter for them. There's no way around that. That that's the argument that Paul's making. Should we take pleasure in reminding them of that truth? No. 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 No, and, but you read, but read through the Psalms. No, read through the Psalms, and there are absolute cries for vengeance and vindication. You can't, I mean, only when you cut and snip and paste, you know, can you, can you get with just the happy, clappy psalms. There are some rough psalms. Go read Psalm 35. Um, and this, there's a place, and granted, balancing this and getting it nuanced and right is, is the trick, but there's absolutely a place in the, in the life of God's people for crying out for the, the souls. Souls in heaven without sin. You can't be in heaven and have sin. So righteous souls under the throne of God scream out for blood. In Revelation 6. They do. And God doesn't say, oh, no, 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 be nice. He just says, wait, give it a bit more time. That's what he says. Why does God send, why does God tell Abraham, go to Genesis. Why does God tell Abraham they're going to spend 400 years in Egypt? He tells Abraham that before they go to Egypt. Genesis 12. Is it 12? I think it's 12. Um, no, it's not 12. Where is it? 
15. You know where I'm going. Thank you, sir. Okay. Yes, 15. Um, we'll just go to the Abrahamic covenant. Start in verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. For the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Okay, why, God? Says my son, he's not here, is he? Zadok's not here? No. This is my son's new response. Yes, Daddy, but why? (laughs) Um, That's what I'd say. Okay, but why? But I will bring judgment on the nation they serve, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. They shall come back here in the fourth generation. Why? For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. You're not going to take possession of the land yet because the iniquity of the Amorites isn't yet complete. I'm going to give them another 400 years to either repent or bury themselves, in a sense. And they fill up their iniquity. So these are just categories we've got to factor in um, to, to the God we serve. That the answer, I mean, think of the other part of the answer in, in, in Revelation 6. Wait a little longer until the number of your brothers that is appointed is fulfilled. Who appointed a number of dead martyrs? God? That's, that's what Revelation 6 seems to be saying. Um, so we can trust that God knows what he's doing. And we can cry. And, and this, what my temptation as someone who sees and, and, and gets, um, I think I get, the sovereignty of God, my temptation is different than maybe someone else's. My temptation is to say, okay, God, here's what I'd like to have happen, but you're so much wiser and so much better. Just do whatever's good. And so I rarely am this persistent widow. And so there's the tension we want to live with is this God says, I'm going to hear you, and I want you to come. And I want you to bring your petitions to me. I want you to never be afraid or ashamed. Just keep on coming. Keep on bringing them. Keep casting them on me. But I want you to trust me. And so I'm more tempted to trust him and just, okay, why do I need to bother asking? He's going to do us good. And, and so I, it's harder for me to labor in prayer on a topic. Um, and, and others get the persistent widow but have a harder time trusting God. So you gotta, you, both of those have to come together. You've got to be persistent and trust that God wants you to come again and again and again and again and trust him with the outcome in the meantime uh, and not doubt that he cares and not doubt that he's just and good. That, that's, the, to me, the challenge is, is maintaining both of those truths. Um, I think um, that Valley of Vision prayer book even has a prayer that sort of gives into that. I've got to find it, but basically it's like, why bother asking for anything? We'll just trust you and praise. But that's not what Jesus is teaching in the persistent widow. That's absolutely not what he's teaching. So um, we're to pray like the persistent widow, and we're to trust God with what happens. We got five minutes. Anybody? Oh, second question. He's got the microphone. Flip side of the coin. I was hoping, I, I was hoping I, the persistent widow, I'd wear you out <laughs> with my talking. Another five years, I won't be able to remember my name. Flip side of the coin, I have wronged other people both intentionally and unintentionally. Uh, Sometimes I've been able to try to make things right. Other times I just sweep it under the carpet and say, Lord, I'm a sinner, please forgive me. Since God is just, should I still expect his wrath? 
you may well expect his discipline. Wrath is slightly different. Hebrews 12 makes it clear. Oh, it's gonna be, there's painful discipline for God's children, but it's redemptive. All discipline is painful in the moment, but afterwards, later, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by it. So God's discipline of his children is not wrath. Wrath has no redemptive purpose. Hell isn't meant to make people better in hell. It's just wrath. There's nothing restorative about it, right? In our country, we've lost the notion of simply a retribution. All of our our, um, prisons have to be reformative. And there's something too reformative on punishment, but we've completely lost the notion of just punishment. So God's discipline of his children is not wrath. But God will avenge. I mean, so there's a warning in First Thessalonians. In First Thessalonians three, hold on. Um, we're warned about sexual immorality because God's an avenger, and the, and the point of the argument. Let me let me get there. First um, Thessalonians three, four. Thank you. Listen to this. So here's the argument for sexual purity. I need to make sure I don't mess around with my brother's daughter or wife. Okay. For this is the will of God, verse 3. Thank you, by the way. You got my back, man. This is the new Zeb, people, the new Zeb. Zeb would sit in here with his his tablet and just fire out the verses I couldn't find. So thank you, sir. Um, Mitchell and Patrice, for those of you who don't know them, well worth getting to know. Anyway, back to Thessalonians. And that was actually 1 Thessalonians. That wasn't even a word. For this is the will of God, verse 3 that you abstain from sexual morality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor and not in the passion that lusts like the Gentiles who do not know God. So his first argument for why you and I need to control our bodies is when we don't, we're acting like the heathen. First argument, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in the matter. And I think in view here is either this woman's husband or father. Why? Why should I not transgress and defraud my brother in the matter? Because the Lord's an avenger in all these things. So there, there is a sense um, in which God may avenge your wrong treatment of somebody else upon your head in this life. You'll never be avenged eternally. You will never go to hell for that. But oh yeah, I mean, did God not avenge Uriah the Hittite to, and David, who David slew through his men? Did God, God not ferret that out, vindicate him publicly, humiliate David, struck the child dead? and recorded it all in scripture, David did not get away with that. And God chose to avenge, and you could argue, Uriah the Hittite upon David. But in a way that actually restored David, brought David to repentance, and instructed God's people. It wasn't pure wrath. So yes, something like that may happen to you or to me, especially if we harden our heart and don't deal with it. So does that answer you? I don't know if I'm trying to say, talk out of both sides of my mouth. Bad things may happen in this life because of bad things you do to other people because God may choose to avenge them. But we will never experience God's final full cup of wrath if you're his child because you're not going to hell. Jesus drank that on the cross. But there, to put it in a more conventional lingo, there might be a big paddling. You, you got the... I think you're still telling me that it's God's job and not my wife's. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, okay. Um, On that note. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Remember, okay, I'll close with this. David's, no, 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 here we go. I'll, I'll. 
Steve, how do you not know that the Lord's not given her to curse you? Remember David fleeing Jerusalem and Shemi follows along the ridge? Go out, you man of blood, you man of blood. Go out, go out. The Lord has brought this upon you. And David's men say, Lord, why should this dead dog curse my Lord? Let me go strike him down. David says, no, let him curse. Perhaps the Lord's given him to curse. Perhaps the Lord. So I don't know. Perhaps the Lord's given your wife. I, don't I mean, it's, it's your guy's business. I'll stay out of it, but who knows? Uh, <laughs> On that note, let's close in a word of prayer. Lord God, we thank you for the, uh, the privilege of prayer. We thank you for um, being a God who cares and is concerned, who does not grow weary of us. Help us to believe that and act accordingly. Um, let us not grow weary or lose heart and to pray without ceasing. In Jesus' name, amen.